Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. Nearing the end of our series, going through the book of Mark from beginning to end, we'll be uh, finishing up next week. This week we're in Mark chapter 16, the last chapter of Mark, the first eight verses. Mark 16, 1 through 8. should be on the screen behind me if you don't have it. <clears throat> when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross came back to life, and ascended to heaven. He did all of those things. Actually, truly, he did them. And we need every aspect of what he did for it to be of any use to us. When we think about what Jesus did, we should remember each of those aspects. Birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Most of us, I think if we're being honest, ignore at least one of those when we think of Jesus. We as evangelical Baptists tend to talk a lot about how Jesus died for us, that he went to the cross, he was in our place, he paid the debt that we owed, he was crucified and paid for our sins, he shed his blood and in that blood we are washed clean. But his death without his resurrection would do us absolutely no good, right? If all he did was die, there's no life for us on the other side of his death. I have a love, it's an amateur love, but it's still a love, of close-up magic. I think those kind of magic tricks, those kind of illusions, are some of the more fun things that we're able to experience in our lives, when you see someone do it and do it well. And magic tricks, if you know anything about them, typically follow a fairly simple structure. They have three parts, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. The pledge is where you show the audience something ordinary, a playing card, perhaps. The turn is where you take that ordinary object and make it seem extraordinary. The card disappears. It's been destroyed. And then there's the prestige, the payoff, the punchline, where you take things a step further. You make the card reappear in an audience member's pocket. Magic is about taking people from the ordinary to the extraordinary to the astounding. What Jesus did in this text was no magic trick. It was no mere illusion. He actually did come back to life. But if we examine the resurrection in light of that same structure, this part of the story is absolutely the prestige. It's the astounding payoff. It's the proof that Jesus was not ordinary, that his death was truly extraordinary, and that he is astounding in everything that he has done. I mean, men simply aren't that special. 
right? There's roughly 30, 40 or so in this room. We are a dime a dozen. And all men die. Some men die nobly, some gruesomely, some as martyrs or maybe even as ordered by a court similarly to Jesus. But no one ever comes back, right? You die and that's the end. Jesus being a good teacher who lived and died, that wouldn't be that astounding. There have been other good teachers, not to his level, certainly not. But there have been other good teachers. There have been other great men. But Jesus coming back to life, that's astounding. Taking a card, making it disappear, destroying it, anyone can do that. But you have to bring it back. And Jesus, by him coming back, he has shown us who he is, what he's done. By his resurrection, he has replaced what we expected and given us that which we did not expect. In our text today, we'll see four replacements that are brought about by the resurrection of Jesus. Four things Jesus has replaced by his resurrection. The first replacement we'll see in the text brought about by Christ's resurrection is the most obvious one. He's replaced death with life. He's given us life in the place of death. We ended last week's text with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary seeing the tomb where Jesus was laid by Joseph of Arimathea. On Friday, just before sundown, just before the Sabbath. And we begin this week... On just the other side of that Sabbath, picking back up with the Marys and Salome. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. You see, when Jesus had been buried, it was done in haste. They had to finish quickly before the Sabbath came because they weren't supposed to do any work on that day. Even the work of burying someone. So he was washed quickly, wrapped, and basically just tossed in the tomb right before sundown. But now that we're on the other end of the Sabbath, it's past, the women wanted to come back and finish the job. They wanted to give his body the proper burial, the proper dignity that it deserved. You see, they were prepared to encounter death as they approached the tomb. They were preparing themselves to stare that death square in the face. I mean, it had been just a few days after Jesus had died. You'd expect the smell to be more than noticeable in that tomb. You'd expect the body to be rotting faster than normal, for the decay to be especially bad, because there were so many open wounds that would just simply never heal. You'd expect them to have to prepare themselves mentally to encounter that kind of dead body in that form of the one that they loved so much, the one they had followed, the one they had served. They had to be prepared for death, and yet they went anyway. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Even through all that work, all that trauma that they would have expected, all the costs and risk involved with doing this, they went to the tomb as early as they possibly could. When the sun had come up on the Sabbath. They were quickly approaching the place of death and expecting to find death when they got there. Yet they don't find death waiting for them at all. They find life. In English, we even get a little bit of a wordplay here that's kind of there in the Greek, but not quite as strong. When the sun had risen. Yeah, more than you know. The sun had risen. By the resurrection of Christ, through the rising of the sun, we find that death has been replaced with life. 
where we expect to find death, where we expect to see death and encounter it, where we expect that that is the end, there's actually life in that place through Christ's resurrection. Before his resurrection, without his resurrection, all we are, in reality, is a people waiting for, preparing for, and approaching death. And we can use all the spices we want, but we still can't cover death's stench. We can show all the strength, all the fortitude and virtue we want, but death is still what's waiting for us at the end. But now, since Christ has come back from death, where we would expect there to be only decay, we find healing. Where we would expect to find only death's darkness, we find the sun coming up over new life. The central and most shocking replacement in our text, which you don't really get to yet in these verses, but we know it's coming all the same. We've read ahead, is the replacement of death with life. And the craziest aspect of this is that Jesus' death and resurrection isn't a one-time thing. He's actually the first fruits of all who die in him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22 says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, all of us children of Adam, we received from Adam death. But Christ has replaced that death with life. He came back that all his children might come back. So now in him, that's what we receive in our place. Death has been replaced with life. But another replacement we see in these verses is our own effort being replaced by a finished work. What we get is finished work in the place of what we expect to have to do. As these women are approaching the tomb, they start wondering whether they'll have the power to do the job in front of them. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? We got to wonder how long it took them to think of this. How far did they get before one of them said, oh, wait. We saw they put that big rock in the way. What are we going to do? How could we possibly be able to get that out of the way? How are we even going to get into the tomb to be able to use these spices that we've gotten? There's a big stone in the way of the tomb. It's like that scene in every heist movie where they're running through all the security of the hotel, of the bank. And they get down to the vault and they say, oh, it's the thickest vault door you've ever seen. The most elaborate ever conceived by man. There's no way we are getting past that vault door to get to what's inside. That's what we're seeing the first century equivalent of. They put a big rock in the way. How are we going to do it? How are we going to move it? These stones in front of the tombs were large and round. They were specifically designed not to be able to be moved easily. Not only was it heavy, but it was specifically set in place. What they would do is they would cut a small divot right in front of the tomb's opening. So whenever you roll the stone stone over into that divot, it's like when your tire gets stuck in the mud. It's just going to spin. There's nowhere for it to go. You need that much more leverage to get it out. Once they roll it over and set it in, it's pretty well set in place. It's not going anywhere. This is a task that is too large for these women. They're going forward with no real hope of being able to get the stone out of the way. It's not just that they need more time. It's not that they need the right strategy. It's not that they need to try harder. They can't do it. It is a job that's too big for them. The work, the effort is too great for them to do on their own. 
However, when they get there, the task has already been accomplished for them. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, for it was very large. See, when they finally got there, they discovered the stone had already been moved. The work had already been done for them. That's the replacement that takes place through Christ's resurrection. They received finished work rather than their own effort, which would ultimately result in failure. They wouldn't have been able to move the stone, and God moved it for them. And that's what happens with all of God's people through the resurrection of Jesus. He did the work for us. He lived the life we couldn't live, the perfect life that had to be lived in the fulfillment of the law in order for there to be life rather than death. He did it where we couldn't. And now through his resurrection, that same life, that same work is what we receive completely accomplished for us. Completely finished. He did the work for us. Where we couldn't earn our own salvation. Where we had no chance at bringing life to ourselves. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Receiving the wages for our work. Christ did the work in our place. And that work is done. Is finished. Jesus said so on the cross. Where we failed. Where we were unable. Where we didn't have the power, the strength. The focus, the ability to do it. He did. Where our our obedience is spotty at best, his was absolutely perfect. Where we couldn't fulfill the law, he did. Where we deserved to die, he died in our place. Where his death paid the penalty for our sins, his life, his resurrection, gives new life to us, his people. The stone has been rolled away and we didn't have to do it. The cross has been died on, and we didn't have to do it. Now what we do is we receive and dwell in his finished work, which has replaced all of our effort. All this is done through his resurrection, through the work of Jesus. The third replacement that we'll see in our text today that's accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus is comfort in the place of our searching. Where we were searching, we have now received comfort. Verse 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. These women were searching for Jesus. That's what the angel told them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Whether they realized it or not, what they were trying to find was life. They were trying to find hope. And for a moment there, in their fear, in their nervousness, they were probably also gripped by despair. When they came upon an empty tomb, that's not what they expected. They were prepared for death. They were prepared for a dead body. They were prepared, and as far as they could be, for a big job of rolling the stone away. They were trying to get amped up for that. But for the stone to be moved, for the tomb to be empty, I really don't think their first thought is resurrection. I bet he's back. I bet he's just walking around somewhere. I think they thought, oh, no. They took him. It wasn't enough for them to kill him. They had to come back later and take him. They saw him die. 
They saw him dripping with blood on a cross for hours, breathing his last, being buried in just this same spot. Their first thought wasn't he's alive. They thought they took Jesus. They thought there was one more desecration that they did. One more indignity that they had delivered upon Jesus. They were alarmed, yes. But I don't think this is a happy surprise. Not initially. I mean, they had probably put all their hopes in this Jesus, who was supposed to be the Messiah, right? He was supposed to be the one who was going to lead God's people to usher in God's kingdom, which would never end. They had witnessed his miracles. They had received his blessings. And now he was dead and missing. But where they had alarm, where they had fear, despair and dismay, what they received was comfort. What are the first words of the angel to them? Do not be alarmed. This heavenly messenger has been sent to tell them the news that Jesus, the son of God, is alive. He came back from the dead and he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't say he's risen. He says, oh, don't be alarmed. It's okay. Before he tells them the facts that Jesus is back, that he is alive, he speaks to their hearts. He says, don't be alarmed. It's okay. Comfort is what he gives them. Back in the book of Isaiah, when God had been giving Israel and the surrounding nations his judgment for chapter after chapter, telling them all the things that they had done wrong and all the ways he was going to judge them for chapter after chapter, he makes a switch in Isaiah chapter 40, which begins chapter after chapter of blessing of his plan, of what he's going to do, how he's going to save Israel through his suffering servant. And he begins chapter 40 with these words. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then... God points to the reason why they should have this comfort in the coming chapters. That there's a coming Messiah who's the suffering servant who will love, lead, rule, and suffer for Israel and in her place. And now, here, in the empty tomb, that comfort's finally come. That promise is finally fulfilled. Jesus has done the work which should bring comfort to his people. So then the angel just tells them, he he gives them the reasons why they shouldn't be alarmed in verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Though they were seeking Jesus, he wasn't there. But their search wasn't in vain. It's not that he can't be found by those who seek him. It's not that they were wrong to try to find him or come to serve him. It's just that if you're looking for Jesus, you're not finding him in a place filled with death. You want to find Jesus, the tomb is the one place you shouldn't be looking. Because he is not there. He is not dead. He said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And crucified he was. He did die. The same man who died is the same man who came back. But this time with a glorified, resurrected body. But this Jesus who was crucified has risen. He got up. Don't be alarmed. Don't wallow in despair. You don't need those spices because he's not dead. 
You don't need to roll away the tomb because that work has been done for you. Though he died, yet he lives. Christ is risen. He ain't here. You were looking for Jesus and you were preparing for death. Well, let me tell you, you will find Jesus, but you won't find death. If you're looking for him at the place of his defeat, you won't find him because he wasn't defeated. He isn't dead. He won the victory and he lives. The angel even starts offering them proof. Come in, check out how empty this tomb is. You see that spot right there? That's where they laid him. His body was there from sundown Friday to sunup Sunday, but it's not there anymore, is it? Jesus, who was crucified, has come back. That's why they need not be alarmed. That's why you need not be alarmed. It's the same reason for us. We don't need to be in despair and dismay. He's not there. He did die, absolutely, but he didn't stay dead. Those of us who follow him have a hope that is secured in him because he came back. Had he only died, we are to be pitied more than anyone. But he came back. He's not there. He's risen. Though death seemed to have won the day, he is risen. Though darkness had covered the land, now the sun has come up. Though they scourged him, though they gave him stripes, by those same stripes we are healed. Though his crown was one of thorns, now it is of imperishable glory. Though his people were sinful, rebellious enemies of all that was good, their sins have been washed white as snow. Christ has done it. He came back. And he had to. Were it not for the resurrection of Jesus, we would have no hope. All we do here would be in vain. We would be literally wasting our time every week when we come together in this place at this time. Surely, surely there would be better things for us to be doing every Sunday than sitting around here for an hour, wearing these same clothes, singing the same songs, listening to the same book, and then going home. But Jesus came back. So we don't need to be pitied most of all, like Paul said, had he not come back. Because he's not dead. Because he has come back to life. In our searching, what we receive is comfort. We receive his finished work. We don't have to be afraid or dismayed. We get to look forward to our own resurrection, following after him. Look forward to our own future. That's the final replacement we see in this text. He takes our failure and he replaces it with a future. We receive a future in the place of where we have failed. Because they have been comforted, the angel then gives them a job to do. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I want to focus specifically on two little words here in what the angel said. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Wow. Do you remember where we left Peter in the book of Mark? The last time we read anything about him. We haven't heard about him for about two chapters in Mark. At the end of Mark 14, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial through the night before the Sanhedrin. They're trying to convict him of blasphemy. They're bringing in false witnesses. And Peter is right outside the house, warming himself by the fire. They ask him three times, hey, weren't you with him? Don't you know that, Jesus? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And Peter says no every time. With increasing passion. With increasing gusto. No. 
No, absolutely not. May I be cursed if I was. Jesus told Peter that he would absolutely deny him three times. But Peter didn't believe him. He said, no, Jesus, I'll follow you to the death. Peter knew it was coming, and he denied Christ anyway. And when Peter realizes what happened, when he remembers what Jesus said, he goes out, breaks down, and cries. That is the last time we heard about Peter in the book of Mark. Peter in a courtyard, Jesus on trial, weeping his eyes out because he has denied Jesus three times. As far as we know, that was it, right? Peter would still be denying Jesus. Peter would still be in fear. Peter would still be saying he's not a follower of him. He was denying that he followed Jesus. He was rejecting the cross of Jesus as a path for Peter himself to follow. Peter was at his lowest. When you would normally think that Jesus needed Peter most, he had bailed. And yet, what did the angel say? Tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. Peter had failed miserably. And yet he wasn't mentioned here as one who had retribution coming his way. And say, tell his disciples and go find Peter because Jesus is coming for him. He didn't say that. So go tell his disciples. And Peter, make sure Peter knows. He wasn't the one they should all avoid. He's included. Not only is he included, it really seems as if nothing has changed. When Jesus foretold Peter's denial in Mark 14, he said exactly what would happen. He said, I'll die, but then I'll come back and I'll go before you to Galilee. Be ready for that day. And then the angel just picks it up as if nothing happened in the interim there. He says, tell his disciples and Peter that he's back, that he's going before them to Galilee, just as he said he would, just as he told them. It's like business as usual. It's like absolutely nothing has changed. When Christ was arrested and they all fled, none of that gets mentioned. There's no reckoning coming from the angel of like, tell us where you've been for the last 72 hours, disciples. No. He says, no, Jesus is back and he's going before them. Just as he said he would. When Peter said with a curse on himself that he didn't know this Jesus guy, that doesn't come up. He just says, meet me in Galilee, just like we talked about. In fact, the, the angel goes one step further. He mentions Peter to make sure that Peter comes too. It's not just that Peter is included in the blanket group of my disciples. It's that we have disciples and make sure that Peter's coming because he might think he's not invited. Peter might think he's not welcome, but he absolutely is. Go and tell him specifically to make sure that Peter, though he may still be crying in a courtyard somewhere, that he finds this comfort for himself too. Though Peter failed, he still had a future in Christ through the resurrection. On the other side of Jesus' death, when he came back to life. And that's possible because the resurrection, the payment, the atonement, the new life, it's even for massive failures like Peter. Massive failures like Nathan Miller. Even for those who don't deserve it. Who have messed up big time. Who no one would expect to still be welcome. It's enough even for us. When Christ pays for your sin, he pays for all. The work is finished. So now, when he comes back, 
He's going before you to Galilee. It's like none of those mistakes, none of those sins, none of those moments where you denied Christ rather than following him, it's like none of them matter. None of them even appear anymore. They've been wiped clean. His new life is enough new life to pay for whatever death that you had already gone through, whatever death you had already had to be paid for. For those who are Christ, not only are they included, not only are they still on the team with their sins paid for, but we have a glorious future waiting for us. The angel didn't just say that Jesus was back, but that he was going before them to Galilee. His resurrection isn't the end of this story, but it's a new beginning with a bright and glorious future earned for his people by his resurrection. And see, the job we have now is to respond to that message, to respond to that gospel in faith, to tell these facts to all we come in contact with. But if you notice, that's not quite what the women did here, at least not at first. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They had all they needed for comfort rather than fear and alarm. And yet notice how this one verse describes them. Fleeing, trembling, astonished, seized, silent, and afraid. They weren't exactly boldly living out their best life now when faced with the, faith, with the fact of Christ's resurrection. But we know that that wasn't the end for them. They didn't remain in fear forever. They eventually told the truth of Jesus coming back to life, not only to the disciples, but also to others. The word spread quickly. And it all began with these women. Though they at one point were afraid, eventually, give it some time, they boldly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ who died and came back to life. And it's my prayer that we would do the same. I am greatly comforted by the example of these women because how the Bible describes them could so often be said of me as well. I'm fearful when I should be comforted. I'm trembling when I should be bold. I'm fleeing when I should be standing. Silent when I should be speaking. But through the power of Christ's resurrection, I had the same opportunity to respond as they eventually did. Doing exactly what the angel told them to do. Go and tell. Tell his disciples, but also tell those who aren't yet his disciples about this Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, but is not still in the tomb, for he is risen. You can do the same. You can respond that same way. Jesus, by coming back to life, has replaced death with life. And he can do that same thing for you and for anyone you come into contact with. He has finished the work in place of our own sorry effort. You have been searching your whole life for something, and you have only found fear. You've only chased after wind. But in Christ, you can find comfort. Though you have failed so often, in Christ, you have a glorious future that he has prepared for you. So tremble, yes. Repent, yes. Believe. And then go and tell. That's what we are to do with this message, with this gospel. That's why Mark wrote it. That's why it's for us to read today. 
That's why we still read these words every week when we come back together. We hear the same gospel every week when we come back together. That Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a man who came as the Son of God, lived the perfect life you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died in your place, and then he came back. And through his new life, you can have new life. So go and tell. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to come together, to gather together, to proclaim your death and your resurrection until you come again. Help for us to glory in this resurrection, glory in the future that you've procured for us by coming back. Thank you for replacing these things, for replacing our sin and death with your life and perfection, for replacing our fear with your comfort, for replacing our own efforts with your finished work. May we always know that when you said it was finished, it was. Help us to always trust that though you died, you came back. And because you did, everything is different. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.